Hello world, this is Better Tech, a podcast where we chat with some of the most successful leaders about the latest industry developments. So join us as we explore the world reliant on tech. Hey John, thanks for joining us at Better Tech. I know you were with us for the uh, like last time. Just for the listeners, can you please introduce yourself? Definitely. I'm really really big fan of the show and excited to be here. So how I got into design um, was a little bit uh, of a twisting kind of trail. So I started out in um, more on the computer science side of things. I thought I was going into kind of IT. And, um, and I started out kind of in that, in that realm, really loving technology, loving to understand uh, what could be done with computers and with technology in general. All right. So John, over today's topic is how product thinking helps for B2B startups, right? So this is something very new that product thinking are moving towards, you know, uh, B2B. People are focusing on B2B products more than the past couple of years. So how you are envisioning it? So today we will be discussing around this this topic. Maybe um, for the rest of the audience, I'd like to know kind of more about your background, specifically in in design. And um, yeah, kind of dig into that for a moment. Yeah, sure, sure. So basically, I'm a product designer. I have been in the industry from like last almost like 10 years. And I'm working as a user experience lead in Texel. So I have a team and we are working on B2B and B2C products. But over focus is mainly on B2B. Depends upon, you know, uh, the industry need, right? So currently we are, you know, getting more requests from clients regarding B2B than B2C. Excellent. Excellent. Well, that's great. Right. So I think that we should start driving the conversation to, you know, um, grab our listeners' interest into it. So what do you think? What's the current B2B landscape? How you see it as a you know, product designer? Sure. Well, um, B2B is, is very interesting. Uh, we know it's, it's a lot different in, in many ways, and it's similar in other ways to, to you know, business to consumer. Uh, in the in the B2B world, um, we have to kind of target to specific decision makers when it comes to, to selling a product mm-hmm. and to getting, you know, users onboarded. Um, mm-hmm. Typically, those decision makers are like, you know, the heads of departments, sometimes HR, IT. Um, yeah, so that's one way that, that it's sort of different. Um, usually, there's a stage of growth that you're kind of targeting as well, um, especially okay. like, you know, a startup that's hit a certain amount of funding and they're ready to really scale up. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's when you're usually targeting, targeting that service mm-hmm. at that specific other business. Um, and then, you know, kind of the, the current uh, setup is, you know, you usually have a longer engagement with multiple, you know, kind of an introduction, then maybe a product demo, then maybe bringing the stakeholders in right. and trying to do the final, you the know, final push. Stakeholders, like we, we, when we are considering the, uh, consumer products, we, we have, you know, few stakeholders which are involved, like, you know, uh, the main seniors of the company. But here in B2B, we, we need to involve, you know, these departments as well, right? If you are creating some product, which is focusing HR and finance, so their leads are also involved in it. So this is kind of a, a platform where we can involve more stakeholders while considering a product when working in B2B, right? 
yeah, absolutely. That's that's a really fantastic point. Um, and and also thinking about maybe you know, and I I'd, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this as as a UX you know lead that's inside of a B two B organization. Um, do you see kind of a shift between the um, the traditional kind of onboarding sales where you have kind of a longer engagement uh, versus kind of a uh, a freemium model, which I know is it's bigger in the in the B two C world, but certain organizations that do target businesses such as Slack, uh, maybe Mailchimp and others, they do have this freemium model of sales that's a lot yeah. different. What do you think about that? Do you think that's a trend that's kind of gonna take yeah. hold or? Yeah, uh, I believe like I have been working in like pre-sales as well with my team and with the sales. So I believe that this, this premium model is going to last for a few years from now because uh, the industry is shifting, right? Uh, the overall, you know, remote working, which came, which like bombarded this year. And it seems like it will, it will stay for long, right? For a few years. So it's a shift of the overall industry. And I believe that people, uh, when they are investing in, you know, they are investing somewhere, they are more conscious about investing directly, or, you know, they, they have fears. But if we are offering any, you know, kind of a premium model, which just gives them confidence to invest, actually. So this is kind of a thing. It's a step back, but it's eventually moving towards, like, we are over pushing over clients and customers to the premium one. But to before, you know, like, rather than directly digging, we are building their confidence. So this is how I see it. Yeah, just kind of stepping up that confidence ladder. Yeah, that's a great point. Absolutely, absolutely. So, uh, what what do you think that um, how when you are thinking of a B two B product, how you can drive it? What do you think? How you evaluate the idea? If someone is coming to you, how you guide them? Yeah, well, I mean, that's um, you know, as as a fellow designer, you can probably relate that that's uh, it's a very complicated problem, right? Is how, how do you take these rough ideas that might be something great, they might be a diamond in the rough, they might be just a run-of-the-mill idea that doesn't have viability, and how do you kind of filter through those in a cost-effective and time-efficient way? And I think that's been, you know, whether it's the birth of UX, trying to say, hey, just because we have a technology doesn't mean we have um, a customer who necessarily needs it or wants it in the way that we're yeah. delivering it. And that was like kind of the birth of UX and that was like a big, big movement. And then we had kind of product management and the business kind of taking some of that in and saying, okay, we can like digest some of that. And so there's like this democratization of data and that went well in some ways and didn't go well in other ways. And so I think like what design thinking is trying to do or when, when it comes to, um, um, you know, product thinking, it's a kind of a similar concept. How do we kind of go one layer up and forget about what everybody's job is and how do we kind of have um, a rough mental framework to think about that process that you just described. And so I think that, I think that might be why that it's sort of catching fire at the moment. And, and you know that this, this is where um, the designers, product designers plays their part that they are getting a rough idea and they are aligning it with business, right? Uh, if someone is coming to you with a rough idea, they are not pretty sure that how much their idea is useful for their end users and how it will work in the market and what's the need. The, the gap is between the need, right? 
so they are not pretty sure about these things so product designer we we are here to you know help them uh, and guide them through the paths that uh, it's good that they have an idea but they need to see its feasibility they need to see how it will you know enroll in the market and how it will affect people's life how it will make their life better right so eventually we Absolutely. are with a product what we are doing we are solving a problem right so we 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 are here to you know fill the gap at how this problem will be solved right absolutely yeah yeah absolutely totally and 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 so i think that's that's kind of where it's coming into play with exactly what you described and um and it's kind of exciting so this is a you know a term that um that was coined by this gentleman um Nike Blase and uh, he's an interaction designer for Zing so he kind of coined the term um product thinking and um what it aims to do is is exactly what you described you have the users over here you have the business over here and a, a lot of times a common pitfall you know and a reason that whether it's b2b or b2c um b2b has a little bit better track record it's not actually as bad of a failure rate as as what we've heard um it's closer to you know 60 and 50% respectively and i think b2b has founders in b2b companies usually it's they're not their first time around so they have a little bit more maturity or they started as b2 b2c and they switched they kind of transitioned over um they also usually have like more funding so they have more runway but yeah. pretty much all startups you know they fail because they run out of money asterisks and that asterisks is yeah. well because they couldn't find product that they they couldn't develop a product that users really wanted um yeah. and, and so how do we how do we think about pulling in the user wants x and oops you know we we shifted and delivered y and so that there maybe even was some you know user experience research at the beginning but uh you know scope creep slipped in and now we're shipping something that no longer matches up with what the market really is asking for um yeah yeah i see it as like the, these days you know we hear from our customers that they are looking for it. they are more interested in ux research they 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 want to know about their users before you know working on an actual product they are interested in you know exploring the industry exploring the users the bestie and you know the overall road map before diving into an idea so i feel like that this is the time when ux research is very important for either it's a b2b product or b2c like product thinking involves the ux research because in this way you are exploring the market you are exploring the business and you are exploring your users uh, for which you are going to solve a problem right so to keep on track you need to be you need to have the research absolutely I, i think it's a step that uh you know you can't skip really at this point in, in the game um so many companies are investing in user experience research and if you are not then you're really at a disadvantage i i think design um along with good engineering technology of course and 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 product you know management leadership those are the keys really those are like the secret sauce to kind of developing those future products and so um you know product thinking makes it a little bit easier to think about because it breaks this whole process that we know of uh you know in in UX process uh basically down into two spaces um the problem space and a solution space um which is really interesting because in thinking about this like in previous companies have come up with like 
versions of this. I think as, as UX designers, you probably can relate with this is like, we're always trying to create a mental framework that works yeah. and every company is different. So it's always like, um, this is the process, but you might not get to do this entire process. You might yeah. only get to do a certain chunk. Maybe marketing takes some, maybe product management takes some. Mm -hmm. um, so that's something you kind of have to roll with, with the punches on. Yeah, exactly. So I heard, I, I read somewhere that there is no, uh, you know, standardized UX process. Uh, whatever process you are following and if you are doing right in the market, it's your right process, right? And <laughs> it could be different for me, it could be different for you, but eventually our process evolves around, you know, discovering the needs, then, you know, defining the problems and then coming up with solutions. So eventually all of us, all the, you know, product designers in the market, they are working in this way. It's like that we have some, you know, top, top and tricks that we use and add into our process. Absolutely. Yeah. We're just kind of tasting, sampling and, yeah. and creating as we go along like a good cook, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, John, awesome. what, do you think that, um, what do you think about the product development and growth um, in, for B2B startups as B2C are investing their like in product development what do you feel about it that how b2b companies and startups need to invest in uh, products development yeah as far as like product development um when it comes to engineering and, and i know this is like even if we back up for a second talk about in the design industry there's this question of like should designers code right and it's like definitely yes definitely no maybe um and i think you know, we're moving into a world where rapid prototyping is really, really practically important. And the design tools are getting better, like Figma is really good. Um, Protopie and Principle are really nice to kind of mock up what, what a, an app might look like. Um, but at a certain point, you know, the rubber meets the road and you've got to produce code, you got to produce working software. Um, so I think that handoff space is something I'm really passionate about. I'm currently working on the design system, which I'm going to open source, like a certain essentials, like a fundamental part of that components, because I believe that it's so important to have a product designed and then that handoff process and all of the documentation and the communication around that can be aided, I think, by having something that reflects in a design program and also in code. Um, so I'm really big on design systems. I think that's a, a huge technology leap. Um, but then, you know, practically what technology you need, I think needs to be further on in the process. Um, one, one mistake that I've seen companies make sometimes uh, or ob observed through stories is like um, kind of spiking and scaling your, your technology stack, your services before you really even know what problem you're solving. And so a lot of times there's dependencies between certain technology, whether it's we're choosing X language for the front end or the back end, or we're choosing this service, right? And sometimes at, when you get deep into the product, oh my gosh, this doesn't work together, but we've already bought this huge license that's multi-year contract. So, and this is inception because like we're talking about B2B companies, but you're building a service for another company. So you're like experiencing their pain, potentially if you build it wrong when you're building it, yeah. Right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> So, so it's kind of I, yeah 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 so so what what our conversation is driving into that analysis before you know digging oh, yes. into the actual product development right we need to do a complete analysis that where we are investing and how we are investing 
which like which people needs to be involved in it so these are the things that require you know your these are this is the analysis stage that needs to be done before actually digging into the development phase right yeah. Yeah. And I mean, in, in product thinking, we call this the, the problem space. So that is basically for broken down into four steps and we can maybe talk through those and then, um, and then dig into the next stage uh, if you'd like. Um, so the first one is, and, and I love this, um, there's the VP of um, product design at Facebook has this um, statement and I was watching a video of hers where she was saying like the first step is, um, is this a real human problem? Because sometimes it's the problem that we've vented in our mind, but it, it doesn't actually it, it doesn't actually affect people, right? Uh, maybe it's like we're we're gonna we're gonna enhance the system, but it's like, well, why is is there an actual user benefit? So is it a real human problem? And then how can we prove it? Yeah. So that's where the the data research, the market research, yeah. um, under, good, right? Yes, exactly. Um, that you were describing. That's where that comes in. To make sure that we can prove that we're really um, we're not kind of chasing a ghost in a way, right? That there's something real there that needs to be solved. Um, and then I think the one that goes along with that, right along with that, is okay. There's a problem, but should we be the ones to solve it? So does it align with yeah. what we're good at, with our strengths or our mission, our our vision? Does it kind of align? Um, I think that's important too. Very right, very right, right. So we are, you know, kind of we we get into something. And we, we do not just start, you know, working on it. We need to see that how we should work on it and either we should work on it or not, right? So yes. this is what you are saying, that if this is not a real world problem, then why we are capturing it? This is how we should approach yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this is commonly referred to as a lab. So I think the problem space kind of resides within a lab environment, potentially, depending on you know, your organizational structure. But this work could be done with a small team. I mean, it could be like two to six people, like, you know, Jeff Bezos is the, the pizza team, you know, team you can, you can um, feed with one pizza, right? A smaller team. Uh, you can have some UX researchers in there, um, some product designers in there, definitely. Um, maybe somebody, you know, like a, like a scrum master or a project manager. Um, and potentially a coder if you're building out a prototype. So number one is, you know, is it a human problem? Number two, does it align with our core strengths and mission? Uh, number three is, you know, who is the tribe that is interested in this solution? Who, who, whose problem are we solving? Um, and how are they being served in the market today? And so I love that book, um, Blue Ocean Shift. And so it was talking about how there's up there's some markets that are red oceans where they're full of sharks and it's very dangerous and it's very competitive and it's hard to get into. And then there's blue oceans. And sometimes we have to look to a different market of user. And sometimes we have to change our product to fit that market. Um, and, and so it's important to, um, to be flexible at this stage. I think it's important. Um, and then the last one is, you know, how do we design an experience that's 10 X just better a solution? Um, something that's really remarkable. Yeah. So, so here comes, you know, the, the process, that how, how we are going to, you know, create an experience which is worthy of the whole investment of, you know, time and people mm -hmm. and money. So yes. we need to come up with a solution. The, the end product should be something which is acceptable in the market, which is useful for the users. And uh, we need to go in shifts, right? We need to create something. 
test and iterate and then come back yes. and then create. It's not like that we create something and we say that this is the best solution. No, this is not going to happen. So we need to, you know, come up with small chunks and then test and iterate things and take feedback from real users. So this is where, you know, we involve users and testing with users is always, you know, best in, at this stage when you are going to invest in something, the development cost. So before actually investing in development cost, what you can do is you can have your users uh, and test your product with it. And then you can, you will have the real actual data and feedback. And once you have incorporated that, then you will definitely be coming up with a solution which is acceptable in the market, right? Absolutely. And I think, you know, as we're, we're thinking about shifting from the problem space to the solution space, um, we better have all of, all of what you just described wrapped up. So we need actual uh, proof that we're providing value. And that's with real users, validated users, not just a user persona that we yeah. made up. <laughs> yeah. And, and then from, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I was just saying that before, you know, the problem space was the one in which we were before. And now once we are creating a solution and we are in solution space, we cannot only rely on the personas. We have to involve the actual users, which will add value to it. Absolutely. And I think from that, you know, when I've seen this work best, it kind of started, um, it started with user research. Then there was some sort of prototype that was iterated over that gave us, you know, a confirmation that yes, this is an actual viable problem that real people are having and we should, and we have a way of solving it and we should solve it. And it fits into our wheelhouse, all of those things. But then building a product charter, which is kind of a little bit of a heavier document, usually created by a product manager mm -hmm. or maybe even just a product brief, which is just like a one pager. Um, we're, it's easier to build that and to write that and have everybody on the same page when it comes to like product designers, product management engineers, if we have a prototype. Because if we build that product charter off of a prototype, we have a general clarity around how it's gonna work, maybe what, what technologies might need to be involved, all of that. And so um, it really gives us kind of one step up. Plus um, when the product charter is there, if the business says, well, I can't really imagine this just from this document, um, I need to see something, you can show the prototype. If they say, well, okay, I see the prototype and I hear the details, but I wanna see that this is really solving a problem. Well, then you can bring the user experience data and you know, maybe some user interviews or, or some surveys. And so you have kind of this trifecta of different um, perspectives to look at this thing from. So now it's, it's turned from a rough idea into a kind of a diamond and you're polishing it every step of the way and now you can look at it in different facets. Yeah. Um, yeah. And eventually the end result will be, you know, something which is um, solving the problem, the actual problem with, which we were tracking from the start. Yeah. And so, so, the, so the first one is, you know, garner buy-in. You, you take it and you pitch it to the business. Usually this is, um, you know, with cross-functional peers in, in product management and engineering. So we're not an island in of our, ourselves with, with, yeah. from the design perspective. So we go to business and we pitch them and either they say, yes, we can, we can, we can offer these resources. We want to pursue this idea, or maybe you just move on to the next one. And that's the beauty of the lab is you're kind of bringing in ideas. You're churning through them quickly and cost effectively. And then the ones that get approved really deserve to, to, to move forward and to have a larger investment pool. When you're talking about lots of engineers, you know, that's a lot more cost. That's a lot yeah. more time. 
exactly exactly that's why yeah. i was saying that before you know actually investing in development cost you need to be sure about your idea you need to be sure about the roadmap of the product that how you are going to enroll in the market how you are going to tackle people how you are targeting at who who is going to be your first target how you are marketing your product so these are you know all the considerable points that you need to work on before actually you know going into the development phase of the product right which is eventually end part right after that we need to enroll it into the market with the users so what do you think about um, the marketing of a product how you see it like being a product designer how you see it that how much of marketing strategy affects the product and its usability I, I, that's a great question I, i think it really does and i think you know there's lots of different approaches to marketing it's a very broad topic but um what's most effective nowadays is social media marketing and then email marketing and then paid search so and then there's different approaches too you know within that space so i think you know when it comes to social media it's really important to find a way you have to have a content strategy by which you can post early and often um and i think the most effective campaigns kind of let partners peer behind the curtain and take in their feedback early on in the process so if you're building you know for instance i'm building a design system so on instagram i'm showing the behind the scenes of like screens as i design them and i'm getting feedback like in real time so i don't release a product again that doesn't have market fit i'm getting feedback along the way and so i think great marketing does that as well it involves like if if you're um you know launching a social product maybe it's involving the community and getting their feedback and thoughts and ideas it's making them part of a of a yeah. journey and they want to see that journey they want to be a part of the solution along with you i think yeah what i believe is that these days our audience our market is very intelligent they they are you know more interested rather than only you know getting the end results they are more interested in knowing the whole journey the process and how the this changes into you know the existence right so they are more interested in that as well so this is how i see it that the audience is very intelligent and we need yes. to be you know with them we need to communicate with them we need to interact with them before you know creating something for them so we have an idea that we are in a journey and we if we are engaging over users and over customers uh, from the start so they'll have an idea that something is coming up so they will be prepared about it maybe and they will be more open with the feedbacks yeah absolutely yeah absolutely and i think we are specifically like um you know millennials and gen y were the most marketed to generation ever and so i think what you're saying absolutely i can bear that out from my own opinion and opinions of my friends i think like um we have a good sense of buzz versus kind of reality and ability to pick up on yeah. on a kind of fake hype and and not really drawn to that so yeah i agree i think authenticity is really important by the way john what do you think that a product designer's thinking evolved uh, with the stages the startup is having so for instance uh, you are working in a startup and you are creating a product right and the startup is not in a good stage maybe so how you think that this evolves your thinking on your product yeah i mean as the product matures um your understanding of execution changes and so 
you know, what you create as an initial prototype is never the finished product, right? You do have to shift a little bit. And um, I think that's both a blessing and a curse. That's why it's important to think about proper planning. This is like product management and even design management and design road mapping is so important. Um, and I've heard of this new theory, which I thought was really interesting. It's like laying out heuristics. So certain guideposts um, at the very beginning. So thinking about, I think this is important too. Um, and I know a lot of design leaders talk about this. You should define the success criteria before you start building. Because once you start building, it's like driving a ship into a foggy harbor. Yeah. It's hard to see what's really going on in, the, in kind of the fog of war as you're like moving forward with the product. And so I think um, thinking about like, hey, you know, this product is going to do X for, for the user. It's going to do Y for the user. Um, and setting, setting that out, it might be a little bit blurry, it might be a little bit shifty, but you won't sway too far from what the user actually wants. And so, um, but yeah, I mean, being flexible is important when engineering comes and says, hey, we can't do X, Y, and Z because this data is legacy data or this system, you know, hasn't been incorporated. I think it's important for us as designers to be a little bit realistic and to understand kind of working with engineers. Yeah. Um, and I have a little bit of an engineering background. I've actually worked as as an engineer before. Um, and so I can kind of empathize with where they're coming from um, to a certain extent. And, um, and I think that's, you know, it's important to think about that um, as you're moving forward to be flexible and to work with all your peers. Definitely, definitely. Because we are in an industry where we are not, you know, we cannot be a jack of all trades, right? We need no. little different heroes with us. We need engineers, we need uh, the marketers, right? So it's a collaborative kind of industry where we are working these days, right? So we cannot say that if we have created something and it's the best solution, uh, so no one can come. Engineering can come up. Engineering may have their own problems they are facing. So we need to tackle those as well, right? This should be a collaborative. This should be a collaborative one. Absolutely. And there's a couple other things actually that um, I'd like to add. And that's that as you're a designer kind of going through the process, mm -hmm. um, I think it's important to think about a product first and features second, because a lot of times a product can get chopped into literally a million pieces. Uh, you might have thousands of items in a backlog. Yeah. And if items are arbitrarily getting pulled out at mm -hmm. the end, you ship like a Frankenstein product. You don't really ship something that's valuable to the user. Um, and, and there's this idea of shipping a skateboard and then a scooter and then a car, right? So it's always in working order and that's great. But in some cases, like if you're Tesla, um, your market might not want a skateboard or a scooter. Maybe they only want the car. Um, and, and so I think thinking about um, products first and how that product experience is gonna work all the way through the process, um, yeah will enable you to sort of push back in certain ways to make sure that at the end of the day, you're shipping a complete product that isn't missing certain really important, um, you know, pain solving features, for instance. Right. So I see it in a way that we need, we need to see the bigger picture and then consolidate the idea, consolidate the features and, you know, work on each of the item step by step, right? You, we cannot say that we cannot, only start defining the feature list and start working on it. It's not like that. The overall picture yeah. should be clear before, you know, actually um, working on the idea. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, 
And then I think, you know, probably the next step is to define the technology. So once you kind of have the product prototyped, you've gone through the research phase, you've um, kind of planned it with the jobs to be done and you're taking thin slices. So a little bit of front end, a little bit of, you know, middleware, a little bit of API work and kind of working in kind of like if you were to cut a cake, you've got those thin slices of all three layers, um, you know, now you can define your technology because you know what you're actually building. So now you can let your engineers go and spike on, okay, we should use Twilio for, for this, you know, notification feature or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. are we going to pick Azure or Google cloud or, you know, um, AWS, like that's kind of the time to do it because you can correctly evaluate what you're really doing and you have clarity and you have approval. So you know that the budget's going to be there. You're not just wasting money. Like you said, um, mm -hmm. you know, before investing all of this time and, yeah. and money. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I think that it's like, it's a very important point that you need to consider the technologies you are going to use for building the actual product. Right. Very right. Yes. Yeah. And lastly, Let's let's talk about what are some tips for developing consistent visual direction for cross-platform experience. So I have seen uh, designers working on some amazing products, right? Uh, they have a lot of things to work on, and eventually, what happens is the overall consistency is missing in the overall product they are working in. Maybe it's a product which has different product lines, like it has app, it has web system and maybe a couple of other things as well. But uh, what I feel is that somehow the team has missed the consistency thing. And which is, which is I believe, is being, you know, being a design team and focusing on a product uh, is a lacking point. How you see it? Absolutely, um, 100%. That's a, that's a major pain point when it comes to design and starting to scale design. As you mentioned, when you get multiple products, multiple product lines, um, kind of the fracturing that can happen visually is a real problem. And we know it's a real problem in UX, it's called omni-channel. So it has an actual name and that's, if you, get a, if you get a text or you get an email or you go on the native app or you go on the web app, does it all feel like one company? Yeah. Is it all speaking in one language? So like UX writing comes into play, um, how the visuals are presented. It's yeah. a major, major problem. Yeah. Absolutely. And how you are utilizing the branding of the company and the product and you know how you are i believe that this is something that you are creating a, a visual you know representation of that product right so either it's it's the product itself or the marketing or the emails you are going to send to your customers right it should all be aligned it should look similar yes. and relatable so let's consider you know myself a user so if i am looking at something an ad on my phone and then I go to my laptop, I'm working and I receive an email and it's the same, you know, same people who are approaching me. So I can relate with the visuals, visual memory, you know, visual memory is more uh, something which, which we remember more than, than something which is not visually clear. So this Definitely. is how I feel that um, while working on a product or product line, uh, we should focus on, you know, creating its, its design system um, very, you know, smart one that it could be utilized for the product lines, for marketing, and for everything which is coming up related to that product, right? Absolutely. I think back in the day of print, you know, we had style guides and brand books, and that was enough, right? Because you were putting 
you're putting your advertisements maybe on a TV commercial or maybe on a billboard and in a magazine. And that was about it, right? Um, we didn't have the technologies of, of computing yeah. and personal computers and all, all of the, the fracturing of, of devices that we have nowadays. And mm -hmm. so I, I think the rise of design systems was just kind of solving a need that had become very painful in a lot of different companies, um, you know, environments is we need a way to track what the iOS app looks like, what the Android app looks like, what is maybe you're building React on the web. Um, and so I, style guides weren't simply enough. And also engineers were being blocked. I think as, as a designer, as you go through the maturity of a product and you're nearing kind of like that, uh, that shipping phase where you're, you're constantly iterating, you're mainly putting out fires. And a lot of times you're solving developers, blockers. They're mm -hmm. coming to you and saying, hey, I need this icon. Hey, what does this font look like? Hey, this and that. And so a design system allows you as a designer to kind of multiply your time um, and it's a, it's a lever by which you can design once and then share everywhere. Um, and so design systems, you know, like I said, they can, they can be, um, hosted on the company's internet. So it makes it easy for everyone to, to, um, know what to expect. And then a lot of companies are, are making these public. So like bootstrap was a very, very early yeah. component library which was created by twitter by some folks at twitter now we have you know asana has one and we have um ones by salesforce and so many different ones. ibm i think they have yeah. their own and microsoft yeah. and all of them um and they're making them public which is great because a lot of times like especially as a b2b company um say your sales salesforce and you have all these other businesses incorporating your business's technology you want that to, to remain consistent so uh, you know, using the logo in a brochure is not the use case anymore. Now it's, they're building an app with all these components. So they want it to be consistent. So they have to, they have to build a, a component library around that. Yeah, exactly. And then they need to make it public as well, as you were, you know, mentioning that a lot of companies, a lot of big companies are doing it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they are, they are providing the space that, okay, this is, this is something we want our product to look like and you need to follow it. Right. So you, you have Absolutely. to, yeah. Right. Yeah. And then, um, you know, so I, I've built three design systems and the, the first one was HTML, which was, you know, fine. And then we shifted to kind of Angular and then quickly to React. And so HTML no longer did it anymore because it was architected in such a different way. Yeah. And so from then on, the second version was basically in React, mm -hmm. but it was in a way kind of hard coded with the styling and the theming, you weren't able to really adapt it to different products mm -hmm. in a different visual way. And also we ran into like CSS uh, naming conflicts where things would be named similar class names. And so you'd have these weird stylistic overwrites that you have to go hunt down. Um, and then the third one was uh, again with React, but we incorporated a CSS in, in JavaScript technology called Emotion. And what that allowed us to do is have these components that a developer could bring in, but then in the heart of their project, they could put a, um, a JSON object, mm -hmm. basically a JavaScript object, and they could define their fonts, their color palette, everything that is custom right. to their brand, basically their style parameters. Mm -hmm. And those parameters could go into the components and overwrite everything. So now you could have a business, say Microsoft, who has um excel over here and and word over here um and you know uh maybe a chat application and they could be using all the same components but they could be stylized in a completely separate manner so you wouldn't even know it's the same code but mm -hmm. you're getting 
you're getting the accessibility benefits, the performance benefits, the security benefits of them being hardened and much, much lower maintenance costs because you've got, you know, a, a much smaller subset of code versus just, you know, a thousand yeah. buttons. Basically, they're similar code, but they're having to be recreated by tons of engineers. And then there's design fracturing and try to keeping it consistent. It's a nightmare. So um, that's some of the technology that exists now um, with like storybook and emotion that, that didn't even exist in a short while ago. Pretty yeah. exciting. Mm, very nice, very nice, very exciting as well. Because it will make our life more easier, you know, when 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 the product is in the development phase, uh, sometimes designer feel uncomfortable, you know, dealing with engineers and, you know, being in their language, it's a kind of a difference. So this is a little bit, I can say, I, I, I always related to in this way that engineers and designers, they will both work side by side but they have difference of opinions. Definitely. <laughs> we need to respect them. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> right. So, all right, John, it was very nice talking to you. See you on our next episode uh, soon with another topic, right? You too. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to WeatherTech. We look forward to bringing you the latest industry news in our next episode. In the meantime, check out our other episodes at techcell.com slash podcast and be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel so that you never miss an episode.